So this morning we're in the book of Acts. Acts. I was thinking about Acts this morning and thinking, you know, Apostles of Christ teaching salvation. Isn't that a good acronym for Acts? The Apostles of Christ teaching salvation. That's precisely what we're going to see in the book of Acts. You can be turning there now, and I'll give you a little history. I'll give you an introduction to the book of Acts. We may even get into the first chapter. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. But... You know, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, was written by Matthew for what purpose? To show that Jesus was the king of Israel, Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah, the king, right? The Mashiach Nagi. Now, who was the primary source for Matthew's information? Matthew. Matthew. He starts out with the genealogy of Christ, and he ends with the resurrection, the Great Commission. Mark's gospel, the purpose of Mark's gospel was to show the servanthood of Christ, that he is the servant of God. And Matthew, or Mark's gospel, begins with the birth of the Baptist and Jesus, and it ends with the ascension. John's gospel, the purpose of John's gospel, primary source of Mark's gospel? Peter. Peter. Don't forget that as we go through the book of Acts. Mark was not an original apostle of Jesus Christ. He wasn't one of the 12, and so he wasn't an eyewitness to any of these things. So all of the information that he shares with us in Mark's gospel was received from Peter, and that's why we call Mark's gospel quite often Peter's gospel. And it ends with, I said, the ascension, the ascension. John's gospel, however, John wrote for the purpose of proving the deity of Jesus Christ, beyond a doubt, Jesus Christ is God. Hmm? And it began with way back in the beginning. Some people say John's gospel is a simple gospel. Nay, <laughs> no, not hardly. You know, but he, he begins way, way back before anything was, right? But how does it end? I'm sorry? It ends with the promise of the second coming. John's gospel ends with the promise of the second coming. You do hold that promise dear to your heart, don't you? Oh, it has such an impact on our lives and our living today when we hold that promise of the future. But when we talk about Luke's gospel, the primary source of John's gospel, John himself, he was an apostle, original apostle, right? I left out one, right? Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel was written for what purpose? To hold, behold the man. Right? Behold the man, Christ the man, fully human, but fully God, right? And it begins with the birth narrative, first the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Christ. But how does Luke's gospel end? The promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament, New Testament, but it's the promise of the Holy Spirit to come because we need to be empowered in order to live a life that pleases God. We can't do it ourselves, can we? No, 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 no. So he ends with that promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, who was Luke's gospel written? Whose primary source? Mary. Mary. Luke was not one of the original apostles. So the primary source of all of the information that Luke gives us in his gospel comes from Mary. Hmm. Co-redemptrix? No. No. (laughs) To be worshipped? No. 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 Well, I'll get to that later on. But nonetheless, Luke's gospel was written to whom? Theophilus name you ever heard. What's, it, what's his name? Theophilus. Theophilus. Theophilus name you ever heard. Theophilus means lover of God or friend of God. So we don't believe that the man's name was properly Theophilus. It was in code. We believe that this is a high-ranking Roman official because in Luke's, turn to Luke's gospel chapter one for a minute. Because Acts is just a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. I hope you know that. So at the end of the Gospel of Luke, it says, as in some of the programs we watch, to be? Anybody paying attention this morning? (laughs) To be continued. So look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 for a moment. Verse 1, inasmuch as many have taken into hand to set in order a narrative, those things which are most assuredly believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them, to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all these things, surely because he got it from his mother, right? Mom wouldn't tell a lie. From the very first to write to an orderly account, oh, most 
excellent Theophilus. Yeah. Now, the most excellent indicates that he was a high-ranking Roman official because that's the way they would greet a Roman official. We'll see that as we go through the book of Acts, chapter 24, chapter 26. Paul is speaking there to most noble Festus, most noble Felix. They were Roman officials. So this Theophilus was a Roman official, but why could Luke not offer his proper name? Persecution. Persecution that was taking place. But he wanted to give him an account, an orderly account, narrative, historical reckoning of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's what the Gospels are. A record of Jesus' earthly ministry, of all he began to do and to teach. So then what is Acts? Acts is a record of Christ's ministry through the person of his Holy Spirit. Not while he is on earth, though, but while he is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. But who's doing all of this work? Who works within you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure? Is it you? No, nay, never. It's the Holy Spirit. And so that's what he's indicating here. And the book of Acts would be a transitional book. It's a bridge between the Gospels to the Epistles. If we didn't have the book of Acts, we would really be lacking in our understanding of how all of this came about with regard to the writings of the Epistles. And the primary writer in the New Testament? Paul. Paul. And there's three, well, I would say three personalities, over almost 100 personalities mentioned in the book of Acts. Two are very primary, possibly three, who are they? Peter, Paul, and sandwiched in between of them. Peter's ministry was to the Jew in Jerusalem, right? As we're going to see the Great Commission being fulfilled, and that's really the outline of the book. Go ye therefore and make disciples, bearing witness of me where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So Peter's ministry was where? In Jerusalem to the Jew. But then there was another young man. His name meant lover of horses. Who's that? Who? Philip. Philip. And Philip's ministry was to Samaria, Judea. You know, and there's a very short narrative with regard, or historical account with regard to Philip's ministry. But nonetheless, he was ministering there. Samaria, Judea. And then finally, who? Paul. Paul's ministry was to where? The ends of the earth. And that's really the outline of the book. We'll see that, you know, in these three personalities. It's wonderful. But the book of Acts is a history of the early church. And how much of a period of history is it? 30-some years. It starts about 33 AD with the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it, how does it end? It doesn't. It doesn't. Unlike the Gospels, they all have an ending, right? Matthew ends with the resurrection. Mark ends with the ascension. Luke ends with the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. John ends with the promise of the second coming. But Acts ends how? Acts chapter 28. Turn there, beloved. The end of the book. Or if you're from the south, the end of the book. A lot of chatter out there this morning. Chapter 28, would you look at verse 30? 31. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, with no one forbidding him. Wow. Open door to share, right? Acts, what does Acts mean? Apostles of Christ teaching salvation. Acts, the apostles of Christ teaching salvation, okay? But the book of Acts is an open-ended book. It doesn't end, does it? What do we know about this time in Paul's life? He's imprisoned in Rome, but he's imprisoned in his own rented house. It's, so it's, it's not such a bad deal. His next imprisonment, however, is going to be far more difficult. But he's going to be released from this imprisonment for a short season, uh, but, but then he will be rearrested, and then he finally will be executed. And when did that happen, approximately? The execution of Paul. 
early 60s, maybe 63, 64. Some say as early as maybe 62. So it's obvious that Luke's account here of the history of the early church in Acts had to be written before Paul's execution, right? Because Paul is in his rented house, not his final imprisonment. Hmm? And so we can time it around that period. But it's a three-decade period of the history of the early church, the work of Jesus Christ, what Jesus both began to do and to teach through his Holy Spirit while he was in heaven, the Gospels while he was on earth, right? But now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for who? Yeah, for you and for me. Isn't that wonderful? Hmm. Let's see, what else do I want to tell you about the book of Acts? Well, what have I not said that you know about the book of Acts? It was written by Luke. And who was Luke? He was a physician and he was a Gentile. He was the only Goyim. Out of the 40 authors of the Bible, all the other 39 were, were Jewish. They were Jews, right? Except for Luke. Luke was a Gentile physician, and there's evidence internally, externally, for the fact that Luke is the author both of the, both of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. What would be... What language or Greek phrases would Luke use that would indicate for us that it was written by him? Medical terms. He uses very specific medical terms in the Greek language that, that would be known to him, but not the other apostles at all. And so that's why we say Luke was very definitely the author. And there's very little argument with regard to that. Luke wrote this book somewhere before 62 AD. It's a three-decade history of the progression of the early church and the Acts of the Apostles still going on today, aren't they? Yeah. Are you apostles of Christ? And are your acts still taking place? Yes, of course. And so that's what you want to understand as we're going through this text. The very things that God was doing through these men and women in the early church are the very things that he wants to do in your life and my life today. They haven't ceased. The record of the acts of the apostles, the apostles of Christ teaching salvation are still going on today, and Luke is recording it now in heaven. It's a long book. <laughs> and you get to have the opportunity of having your story and your testimony and your witness written in that continuation of the story of the Acts of the Apostles. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. Okay, well, let's get into the text then. Now, when Luke ended his gospel, turn with me there to the end of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to, he's going to pick up right here. He's writing to O Theophilus, lover of God. So it's not just this man, this official, who they believe, by the way, would have been uh, the benefactor, would have been the beneficiary, the uh, benefactor, yeah, of giving Luke what was necessary so they could produce these manuscripts and distribute them. And uh, the book of Acts is not only a record of the history of the early church, it's also a defense for Christianity. Why was Jesus arrested? What, why was he crucified? What, what crime did he truly commit? Treason, claim to be God, claim to be a king, claim to have a kingdom, which is a direct threat to Rome. Hmm. Paul preaching the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that only through Christ alone would you receive salvation, that Christ alone is the one true God, contrary to the religious plurality that existed in the day, right? Was Jesus really a resurrectionist? Was he trying to bring about an insurrection? Was Paul, John, Peter? Was the church today trying to bring, was there a resurrection or an, excuse me, an insurrection on January the 6th? No, no. And so Luke is writing to give this Roman official the information necessary to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that Christianity is no threat to the state. As a matter of fact, Christians are the most obedient citizens within the state. Oh, can you imagine if conservative America was as radical and as lawless as the liberal left, what we would have today? But you see, conservatives aren't lawbreakers. We want to obey the law. Why? Because we obey a higher law, right? Yeah. 
And so they're writing historical account of the first three decades of the church, but also a defense for Christianity that is no threat to the kingdom, to the empire of Rome in any way. No, as a matter of fact, Christians are better citizens. And then lastly, it's a brief, a legal brief for who? For defense of who? Paul. It's a legal brief for a defense of Paul. Uh, it's theorized that uh, this man is going to use what Luke is documenting here in Acts as a defense for Paul and Paul's innocence. That he wasn't trying to overthrow Rome. He wasn't trying to lead a res- an insurrection. You know. Hmm. But at the end of the book of Luke, go there, the Gospel of Luke. Once again, a uh, post-resurrection appearance of Christ to his own. Let's pick it up in verse 44. And he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. God's word. And they only had the Old Testament, you know. And, And the early apostles, I mean, they were Old Testament people. They believed the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have a complete understanding of what the Old Testament scriptures had foretold with regard to the Christ. There was a lot of confusion about that, wasn't there? You know, to the Greeks, uh, resurrection was nonsense, foolishness. To the Hebrews, the suffering of Christ was an offense. They did not believe the suffering of Christ, even though it clearly was demonstrable predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, Where do we see the suffering of the Christ at first? At first. At first. Go way back. At first. Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. What was he talking about there? You shall crush his head, but he will bruise your heel. Speaking of the suffering that would take place of the Savior of the world, the Messiah, but then we do have Psalm 22, the Suffering of the Messiah on the cross, the king and his cross. We have Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. So it it was predicted throughout the scriptures. And we know today, even today in Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, Reformed Judaism, they won't read that forbidden book. What forbidden book? Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Why? Clearly demonstrates that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that was written. And so the early apostles, they had a good understanding of the scriptures, but they weren't able to connect all the dots yet. Oh, but after the Holy Spirit came, they were different men. Hey, think back with me. Before you truly knew Jesus, before Jesus, through the person of the Holy Spirit, walked into your life, What was your Christmas like? Your Easter. We don't call it Easter anymore, but it was an Easter then, wasn't it? What was your Christmas or your Easter like then? Didn't have much to do with anything spiritual, did it? No. It was totally worldly, fleshly, carnal, earthly, temporal. And as far as your understanding of the Bible... I can remember when my first wife would encourage me to read the scriptures and boring. It was like eating sawdust. It meant nothing. Ooh, how does anybody get anything out of this? Do you remember that? Do you remember? Now, now, do you remember how exciting it was when your eyes were open? When he gave you that enlightenment of your heart, that swelling of your mind, that swelling of your heart, where, wow, Christmas came into your life. The great present of Christmas is Jesus himself, right? Everyone needs to experience that Christmas. And, and Easter became the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We call it now, Resurrection Sunday. 
And it became so meaningful. And then suddenly, all of the scriptures, well, the Bible that we were dead to previously, now suddenly becomes alive. I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't stop reading the Bible. Every time I picked it up, he would not only speak to my, my head, but he would swell my heart. And to this very day, I get excited. Every time my father speaks to me through his word and, and he gives me the ability through the person of the Holy Spirit to make those connections, to, to connect all the dots. We did that last week, didn't we? Isn't it exciting? Isn't it exciting for those of you who really know the word of God to look out at what is happening in our world and then you go to the scriptures to give commentary? Wow. What did I mention last week in our message through Jude? that indicated his coming is very, very soon. Indicated that I feel his breath upon my neck. I'm sorry? We're moving towards what the Bible had predicted, a one-world economic system, a one-world health system, a one-world governmental system, a one-world religious system, and we talked about the global digital identification number that every human being is going to receive by 2025. That's, that's their target. 2025, every human being on the planet will receive a global international digital number. And within that number contains everything they need to know about you. And if you're not a good citizen, mm, you go on the blacklist. And you can't buy, and you can't sell, and you can't travel, and you won't be able to buy gas or groceries. Or, that's pretty frightening, isn't it? And this year, this year, what are they rolling out this year? CBDC. The central bank digital currency, where you're going to own nothing and, and be happy about it. Yeah, because they're going to own everything and only allow you to have what they think you need at the time, right? But we see all of that taking place, and we see 2025, and this year, 2023, and, and we're that close to with the whole world being under the control, the sway, the governance of the evil one. Well, what has to happen before that takes place? The restrainer has to be removed. And make no mistake about it, the restrainer is not the Holy Spirit. The restrainer is the church. The re Listen to me now, not Chris and dumb. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> They're dumb. I'm talking about the body of Christ. The body of Christ that's aware. And, and when we connect all these dots and we see what's taking, doesn't it excite you? You know, I don't get depressed when I watch the news. I get excited. I can see him on the horizon. The king is coming. The king is coming. You believe that? Yeah. All right, now listen to me. Listen to me. That's precisely what happened to the apostles. They had, a, they had a vast understanding of the Old Testament. And they are going to begin. We're going to see in the book of Acts now for the first time under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're going to start quoting the Old Testament. They're going to start putting together all of these prophecies concerning Christ. They're going to connect all the dots. And they're going to be so excited about it. We're Passover becomes so meaningful. He is the Pesach of, Christ, of God, the Christ. Before it was just a ritual that they would go through. Every spring we celebrate the Passover, slaughter the lamb. That's what our Christmas was like, wasn't it? That's what your Easter Sunday was like too, wasn't it? Put on your bonnet. <laughs> Nothing intelligent under it. You know? <laughs> Hasn't it made a tremendous difference in your life now? Hasn't it? Don't you get excited before when you were dead to the truth of God's word? You were dead to what God was trying to do, and now that your eyes are opened and you're enlightened, whew, how, how else can you make sense of the insanity that's going on today? But when we look at the scriptures and the Holy Spirit gives us understanding, we can connect all the dots and say, of course, Jake, of course that's what's happening. You know. Well, that's what began to take place among the apostles. As the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them, all of their understanding of the Old Testament is going to become so much more meaningful. Don't negate what we're doing in Sunday school, church school with the kids. You know, some parents think, well, you know, they just, it's a lot of information, but it hasn't touched their heart. They haven't given their life to the Lord, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Listen, just like those apostles who grew up understanding all of the Old Testament, 
Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit enlightens him and can put it all together. I can remember my son when I was saved and how bored he was to death when I would be teaching him the scriptures. But I would teach him the scriptures. His mother would teach him the scriptures. And we'd hope and pray that someday it will all go off, the light bulb will go on. Oh, yeah. And it did. And, and we laid a foundation for him to pull all those pieces together. That's what we're doing with our children. You know? So don't be discouraged, parents. Even though you think that they may not be listening, I can remember, I can remember Deborah when your Aaron would sit here. And I, and I was under the impression he was sleeping. But you know, that boy had the ability to hear everything I was saying. Understand it? Nay. Receive it? Yeah. But now, now as a father, as a husband, now it's all coming together for him, isn't it? Isn't, isn't it wonderful to see that when it takes place? So that's what happened to the early apostles. I want you to say that's why they're so excited now about the Bible, the Word of God, because of its fulfillment in Christ the Messiah. That's why you and I have this wonderful opportunity now, this adventure, this journey we're on, to go out there and tell the world how all of this makes sense now. It's, listen, nothing's falling apart. It's all coming together. You understand? The world is depressed. The world is hopeless. Suicide has never been higher. When you experience the hope of death, the only hope is death, right? But you and I, we, listen, we have the opportunity and the ability now to give people a hope, an assurance of what is going to take place, an absolute certainty of a future expectation. And what's that expectation that the Bible gives us? Our Jesus is coming. The King is coming. And we ain't talking about Alvis, are we? No. <laughs> so I want you to look with that understanding. But here he goes on to say, verse 44, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. You remember when the two disciples were on the road to Emmaus? What did he do then? They didn't recognize it was Jesus. But what did he do? He said, why are you guys all bummed out? What are you so depressed about? What's your problem? Well, don't you know the things that have happened in Jerusalem? <laughs> Quit your whining. And he began to take them through the scriptures and all that would take place with regard to the Messiah. And their eyes were opened. And they couldn't wait to run back to Jerusalem to tell the other apostles. Isn't that exciting when you get to the Word of God and it all makes sense to you and you can't wait to tell everybody about it? That's what they were doing. Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures and in them you think you find life or you have life by your obedience of the law. Never, never, never. He said, but these are they that testify of me. They bear witness of me. But they couldn't see it because they were spiritually dead. And so many today so many today are spiritually dead. Unless God opens their eyes. We're surrounded by religionists. Well, people who love to do a Bible study fill their head, but it hasn't touched their heart. And that's a problem. Yeah. And so you need to pray and ask God to make you one of those apostles of Christ. Teaching. Salvation. By grace. Through faith. Right? Sovereign grace alone, we are saved. Nonetheless, verse 45, and he says, And he opened up their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then they said to them, Thus it was written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And they said, Duh. No, they weren't empowered yet, were they? No, they needed to be empowered so that they were enlightened by the Holy Spirit so they could be used to be his witnesses. My wife will tell you, you know, I forget everything. I do. You know, I'm always asking, do you see my keys? You know, you know where my keys are? My, my wallet, have you seen my wallet? You know where, my phone, I have no idea where I placed my phone, you know. And I am such a forgetful person, believe it or not, I really am. But when it comes to the scriptures, I am just so pleased. Praise God. So thankful he's given me such a memory for the word of God. I don't care if I... And what's your name? 
<laughs> well, that would be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? No, but, but I, I, listen, the one thing I want to remember, the one thing I want to cherish, the one thing I want to hold in my heart is the Word of God. Amen? Yeah. I'll be honest with you, I'm a forgetful person. But when it comes to the Word of God, God has blessed me with a good memory, love for the Word. I pray he does the same for you. And that's what he was doing to them. And then he said to them, now this is what's necessary. Verse 49, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Bethany is also called The place where he was, yeah, yeah. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, but he was loved in Bethany. Bethany was just uh, the, the Sabbath day's journey outside the city of Jerusalem. It was right next to the Mount of Olives, Avalet. One and the same, really. Same location, geographically. I want you to understand that. So he led them out to Bethany or to the Mount of Olives. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he departed. He was parted from them, separated from them, and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen? But it doesn't end there. No, 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 no. Now, he told them that they need to tarry in Jerusalem until they receive the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit for the ministry that God has called them to, to be his witnesses, to allow that light to go on, to enlighten their mind with regard to the promises of all of the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. But now were they born again? Yes. Why do you say that? That's right. Turn with me to John 20 for a moment. Now, this, at this time, at the end of Luke, chronologically, this is just before he does what? He ascends. He ascends. Luke alone tells us, and he'll tell us in the book of Acts, that he was seen on earth post-resurrection for how many days? Forty days. Forty days. Forty days he would appear and disappear, appear and disappear. You know, whoop, there he is. Whoop, he's gone. Whoop, there he is. Whoop, he's gone. You know? And there's no less, no, there's no less than ten post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And most of those happen to be on the same day. Not on the same specific day, but the same day of the week. Which day was that? Sunday. Sunday. First day of the week. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Why don't we worship on Saturday? Saturday's the Sabbath. Because Christ rose on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, and that's why we celebrate Christ's resurrection. Every time we gather together on Sunday morning, it's a mini celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, so this takes place just prior to his ascension. Now, now it need be that they see him ascend. Why? Because they expect him to go, boop, there he is, boop, there he's going, boop, there he is, you know. No, no, no. Now they know. They know that he's ascended. And oh, by the way, some heavenly messengers are going to give them a message. And what are they going to say to him? Oh, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you will return in the same manner in which you have seen him go. That's significant. But nonetheless, now, now we know that he told them to go to Jerusalem and tarry and... Thomas said, I doubt that he wants us to go to Jerusalem. He, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't mean that he wants us to go to Jerusalem, does he? No, no, no. He hasn't called me to go to the Ukraine, has he? Why, why, would, why would they not want to go to Jerusalem? Why would they want to go home? Where's home? Galilee. Galilee in the Galilee region. So they, you have to understand, they had to be greatly afraid. Where did they go from this point? They go to the upper Rome to hide out. Why? Very, very, very dangerous for them to stay in the city of Jerusalem. But nonetheless, Jesus says, tarry here. Isn't it so often he takes us out of our comfort zone? I can't, I can't tell you how uncomfortable I am right now standing here talking to you. You probably don't believe that. She knows it's true. Every Sunday... Every Saturday, every Wednesday, my stomach starts turning. Why? This is an awesome responsibility. I wish, you know, Rob, would you do this instead? I, I don't want to. 
But you see, so often he wants us to overcome our fears through his strength. I can do all things through. So you're, they're to tarry in Jerusalem. He tells them that just before he ascends up into heaven and they won't see him again until they go to heaven. But at the end of John's gospel, however, it's another matter. Go with me to John 20. And this is all a review for you. I know you know that. But it's so good to be refreshed and have these things brought to our remembrance. At the end of uh, John's Gospel, John 20, there's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it tells us in the first verse that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So when was this? It was the first day of the week. It was Sunday. It was a Sunday morning. The first, uh, this is the first day of the resurrection. How many days was he seen on earth? 40 days. 40 days. Now, at the 40th day when he ascends, he's going to tell them they've got to tarry in Jerusalem. Now, they don't know how long they have to wait. They really don't understand any of this yet, but they will. Luke understands it. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So he understands it completely after the fact. How long are they going to have to tarry? How do you know that? Because he's going to fulfill the Feast of Pentecost. She said, because you said so. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> No, Acts 10, 17, be a good Berean, search the scriptures and know them for yourself, right? But we, we know that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. We know that Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. We know that it's been 40 days since the Passover resurrection occurred. We know it's got to be about 10 days, 10 days, that's all. But they didn't know that. They just knew that they needed to. What are we doing on Sunday nights at 6 o'clock? Waiting. How long do we need to wait? I don't know. He just said wait. And so we gathered together, we're praying, and we're waiting on the Lord. And it's been a sweet time. We'll, be, we'll pick it up again this evening at 6 o'clock, for those of you who would like to join me. It's a very different time for us as we gather and wait upon the Lord. But here in John 20, it's the first day of the resurrection. The first day of the week is a Sunday. And uh, so then we look at verse 19, and it says, Then the same day at evening. So what day is this? Sunday. Sunday. It's a Sunday evening. It's still what day of the resurrection? First day of the resurrection. The doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came in and stood in their midst and he said, Shalom, Mishpukah. Peace be with you. When all the, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands, his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Huh. The only thing man made in heaven, what is it? The marks in his hands, his side. It's the only thing man made in heaven. Hmm? Yeah. And Jesus said to them again, Peace to you as the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed upon them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. They had the power to forgive sins? No. It was through the preaching of the gospel, the message of salvation through Christ alone that would bring about salvation. If you accepted the message of salvation, you could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and receive eternal life. If you reject the message, you're rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit with regard to the person of Christ, and that is the unforgivable sin, then you are damned forever. That's the only unpardonable sin. You understand that? The only unpardonable sin is rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit through his agents. We're all secret agents now, right? Rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit with regard to the person of Jesus Christ. That is the only unpardonable sin. Do you understand that? Receive ye the Holy Spirit, for if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them at the time Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, I doubt it. I doubt it. Unless I see his hands and the print of his nails and a finger and put a print of his nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And we know what happened. He appeared to them again. Another post-resurrection appearance. But the point I want to make to you is this. The working of the Holy Spirit, the Rakhogadesh in the Old Testament, could come on a person, ecstasy for empowerment, for whatever God's purpose may be, but the Holy Spirit could also mm, depart from that person. We have an example? Saul. 
Samuel. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a real concern in the Old Testament. You could receive an empowerment for the Holy Spirit for the work or whatever work that God has for you, whatever ministry, whatever he would like to perform through you. But you could also have the Holy Spirit come off of you. When David sinned, David prayed, Psalm 51, is, take not, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, Lord. Now that was a genuine concern then. Aren't you glad that's not a concern today? Yeah. Oh, boy. So, so we know from the teachings of Jesus, and it's pretty exhaustive in John's Gospel, probably chapters uh, 14, 15, 16, where he's talking about the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, that once he comes to dwell within us, he's in us now and never to forsake you, never to leave. Isn't that wonderful? Now, you can grieve him. You can grieve the Holy Spirit who is within you, where he will withdraw, where you don't really have his power until you make things right, until you confess your sins and repent. And turn back to the Lord. And then you've excited the Holy Spirit where he can start to work all over again in your life. But he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll be with you even unto the end of the, even to your death. Right? To take us home. So the work of the Holy Spirit is threefold. There's three Greek prepositions that kind of explain that. The Holy Spirit will be with you. Para, he explains that in John 16. As Jesus was with them for how long? Three years. About three, three and a half years. He was ministering to his disciples. It takes about takes about two to three years to disciple somebody, truly, bring them to maturity. But he was with them, with them, para. Now, here in John 20, there's a different work of the Holy Spirit where he breathed upon them and he said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came in them. And John describes that as well, Jesus' words in John 16, that he will be with you and he will be in you. En is a Greek preposition, like our English word, in. He dwells within you. So he said, he breathed on them and he said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Do you think something happened? Of course something happened. He didn't have garlic breath. It wasn't that he had pepperoni pizza the night before, right? No, 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 no. He, he, listen, that's when the Holy Spirit came to dwell within them and they became born from above, born again, born of the Spirit of God. Isn't that wonderful? Now, now, I hope, I hope everyone in my hearing, whether you're on the internet or rather here in the sanctuary that you're born again, that you've had the receiving of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it's by God's choosing, not ours. But then there's a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about now where the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Epi, E-P-I. This is what he's saying. Go tarry in Jerusalem. You're only going to wait 10 more days. They didn't know that, but it'll only be 10 days. And then Pentecost will be completely fulfilled where the Holy Spirit will fall upon the church and the church is birthed with you in you, upon you. What's the purpose for the upon, the epi? Empowerment. Empowerment. Now, I don't, I don't know what God's calling is upon your life. I would pray. My son and I were talking this morning. We talk every Sunday morning, and I ask him what he's teaching this morning at his church, and he asks what I'm teaching at my church, and he was talking about the calling. He wants people to understand in this new year, you have a calling. Everybody has a specific calling. And I was talking about that yesterday at the men's study, wasn't I? Do you know what your calling is? I hope you do. There should be no ambiguity. There should be no questioning. You don't wonder what the... You should know what the calling is that God has upon your life, and then he empowers you to do the same. Does he call the equipped? No, no. What does he do? He equips the called. Who are those that are called? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to look for a moment. I want to know how... I want you to know how special you are, the people who he's called. So you remain humble. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent where's the rise where's the scribe where's the disputer of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world for since the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God age of information right we're forever learning but never isn't it amazing? We're in an age of information. We're, we're, I mean, just it's amazing. No one's an expert in any field anymore because of what we're learning constantly. Information is, is just exploding exponentially in any field of study. Forever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. The truth. Hmm. That's what he's saying here. 
verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, right? Because they didn't believe in the suffering Messiah. And to the Greeks, foolishness, nonsense. You're, you worship a Savior who was crucified. <laughs> but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God than, stronger than men. Now, you want to know your calling? If you're called, how many are called here this morning? Every hand should be going up. Are the elect of God? How many are called? Okay, well, we want to read a description of who you are. For you see your calling, brethren, and not many wise, no wise guys here, right? According to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the... Oh, yeah. Hey, is it okay to be a fool for Jesus? Yeah, yeah. yeah that doesn't matter if they think you're a fool, right? A moron. It's for Jesus' sake. If you think I'm out of my mind, Paul said, it's for the Lord. <laughs> for God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world which are despised, God has chosen. The things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh could glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, for it is written, he who glories, glory in the Lord. Hmm. These apostles, they, they would see at least three manifestations of the glory of the Lord. You remember the first one where God was glorified before them? The Mount of Transfiguration, that's exactly right. He was transformed before them. And they saw Jesus, right? What were happening previous to that vision of Christ in all of his glory? What were they doing? They were just sleep, like many of us, right? What do we miss when we're sleeping spiritually? Hmm? Yeah, but no, they awakened and they saw Jesus in all of his glory and Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And then Peter said, I got a great idea. What did he say? I'm going to worship all you guys. You know? <laughs> yeah. Let it be an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right? And suddenly Moses and Elijah were gone. And they heard a voice from heaven say, Behold, this is my beloved son. Now hear him. Listen to me. Listen to me. He who glories, glory in. Be careful of all of this personality cultism that's going on in Christianity today. It's all fluff. It's all smoke and mirrors. There's no substance. There's no reality to it. It's a sentimental, fleshly, emotional understanding and view of God rather than a biblical, theological, doctrinal understanding of who God is. Be very, very, very careful. And the Pied Piper, as he convinced all the rats to fall into the river. How did he do that? Through his music. Music is luring an entire generation into a false sense of spiritual security. I hope many of you are aware of that. And we need to rescue our nieces and our nephews, our grandsons and granddaughters from the Pied Piper that is out there seducing them through this music that is so profane. It's an abomination. It appeals to your flesh, your carnality, your carnal man, not to the spiritual man. And so many are being led into doctrinal error. Rather than believe, believing the truth, they are embracing the lie. Over 80%, and particularly the younger generation, 80% when asked the question, can good people of other faiths go to heaven? They say, well, of course they can. You can't be saved and believe that. It's not possible. The transfiguration was the first manifestation of the glory of Christ that his apostles saw. What was the second one, maybe? Up, the resurrection from the dead. Up from the grave he arose, right? The resurrection. What's the third? Manifestation of the glory of Christ, his ascension. And they saw that. This is what we're talking about here. And, and they would never forget those events. And nor should you or I ever forget the time that Jesus Christ walked into our life, 
transformed our lives, resurrected in our lives. And one day we have the absolute assurance of knowing we're going to ascend with him, go up. So nonetheless, that's what we see here. We see that the work of the Holy Spirit, he is with us, he is in us, and then he comes upon us for the work of the ministry. Whatever you're called to do, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. That's what we're reading here. He takes the foolish, he takes the, way, the, the, the weak, he takes those who are despised, and he uses them to bring to nothing those that think they are something. Right? A good example of that was Moses. For his first 40 years in Egypt, he thought he was something, right? Second unto Pharaoh. He was a mighty warrior, by the way, commander of Pharaoh's army, he was a highly capable individual, highly intelligent, and so he thought he was God's gift to everyone and everything. Well, God had to humble him, didn't he? So after 40 years of Egypt, he went 40 years chasing Jethro's sheep. They weren't even his own sheep. For 40 years, he had to walk through sheep dung. <laughs> Humbling experience for this mighty man <laughs> until he realized he was nothing. And then when God called him, what did he say? No, no. You've made a mistake. You've got the wrong guy. You needed to, you know, my brother Aaron would do a better job. Yeah? Hmm. yeah. Nonetheless, uh, so that's what we're going to see. We're going to see this wonderful experience that takes place in the life of God's apostles where now they're not, they haven't, come equipped, they're going to be equipped through the person of the Holy Spirit. If I, didn't, if I didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was with me every time I come up here, I wouldn't do this at all. No way. But I know God has called me to do what I'm doing. And he's equipped me to do what he's called me to do, as he will you as well. Yes. You know you are the chosen, right? The elect of God. And therefore, he hasn't chose you to be a spectator, has he? He hasn't chose you to sit on a pew and do nothing. He's chose you to be a participant in this glorious adventure that we're on, this journey, this pilgrimage, and bringing others with us. What are the acts of the apostles? What does it mean, acts? Apostles of Christ teaching salvation. Repeat it with me. Apostles of Christ teaching salvation. One more time. Apostles of Christ teaching salvation. And what percentage of the church share their faith on a regular basis? Two. Two. I, I hope we have a healthier percentage than that here. And I know we do. I'm looking out at many of you, and I know you share your faith. And I want nothing more than to teach the way of salvation for people. Amen? Okay, back to the book of Acts. We're getting, moving right along, aren't we? <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach during his earthly ministry. What was that former account? The Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Again, written to Theophilus. We'd, that's not his real name, a Roman official. Historical account of the record of the first 30 years of the church. It's an apologetic or a defense for the gospel or for the Christianity itself that we're not a threat to the empire. And also be used for a brief in Paul's defense when he goes to court. Until the day that he was taken up. Who was taken up? Jesus, after, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what commandments did he give them? Okay, he told them to tarry. But I, th I think there's a greater commandment that he's referring to here other than just tarry in Jerusalem. Go with tarry in Jerusalem. I don't want to stay in Jerusalem. I don't think he said that. Do you believe he said that, Peter? I don't know. Thomas, you know what he said? I doubt it. I don't think he meant Jerusalem. I think he wants us to stay in Galilee. We should go fishing. You like to fish, Henry? Let's go fishing. Hmm? That's what they really wanted to do, didn't they? Now, he told them to tarry, right, in Jerusalem. Now, and they, were, they were supposed to meet him later on at a specific mountain in the Galilee, but where does he find them? Fishing, fishing. When boys don't know what to do, what do they do? They go fishing, you know. Hmm. But here, the, the commandment was not just to tarry in Jerusalem, but the commandment was to go ye therefore. Those are the last words from our commander-in-chief, you know. Not just for them. Those words are for you and I, aren't they? Yeah. You know how this all happened, right? Why this is occurring is because 
When I transferred down here with a corporation I was working for at the time, back in 1989, I started to share my faith. I started to make disciples. I started to witness where I worked, which became a Bible study at the plan, which became a home study. And then suddenly somebody had the bright idea of starting a church. And I said, no, I don't think I want to do that. But we did. And this is how that's happened. Why? Because I obeyed the command that he gave us to go ye therefore. Christmas Day. What did I teach on Christmas Day? Now, for many of you who have been here any length of time, you've heard me repeat that over and over. But how, for how many of you with that new information, you never heard anything like that before? Several of you. Now, I would say that the majority of Christendom have no idea what the Migdalator was. No idea. Why? Because, because the church no longer is going forward and doing what it's responsible to do, make disciples. We evangelize the saved over and over and over and over again, right? Now, and, and uh, some of my favorite people are Baptist ministers. <laughs> but the Baptists have overemphasized evangelism at the cost of discipleship, you see. Teaching people, grounding them in the word of God so they're equipped to go and share, right? But that's what Christ says. The last command he gave us to go ye therefore and take as many scalps as you can. Is that what he said? Huh? No. Make disciples. He didn't say go evangelize. He said make disciples. It's an entirely different matter, isn't it? Yeah, how many times do people come forward, they get saved in a crusade, or they get saved in some evangelistic service, and then they're left to hang out to dry. That's precisely what happens to them, doesn't it? Yeah. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by... And so we need to be disciples, grow strong so we can have a walk worthy of our calling. What does that mean? A walk that displays our obedience to Christ and his word and how his word beautifies the life of an individual, a marriage, a family. Wow. I have a walk worthy of the calling. We have to have an understanding of the word of God. It's calling upon our life. Yes, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day he was taken up, after, through the Holy Spirit, he had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. Apostles, apostolos. Are there apostles today, the office of apostleship? Does it exist today? Don't say that to the word of faith, people. You know, the blab it and grab it, lip it and grip it crowd. Positive confessionism. They think there's apostles today. Now, we're going to see next week, as we move further into the text, that there are requirements for apostleship that no one could possibly fill today. No one. Now, are there apostolos in the general sense of the word? Yes. Absolutely. And then in the general sense, think of it as an ambassador. We're all ambassadors of Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul uses that term twice when he's speaking to the Corinthians. He's an ambassador of Christ. We're all ambassadors going forth, representing the teachings of our master. And we have no right to change the truth of God's word, to change the gospel. The exclusivity of Christ alone for no other way can a man receive salvation. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's no other way. I don't make an apology for that. But that way is open to everyone who will believe, right? Yeah. To whom also he presented himself alive after suffering many infallible, irrefutable evidence and proofs being seen by them during 40 days. So this is where we get the 40 days, only here, okay? And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So there were no less than 10 post-resurrection appearances. The last appearance was what we just read a few moments ago at the end of Luke's gospel, where he ascended up into heaven. And he told them that he would return. The angel said that he'll return in the same manner in which you saw him go. Where did he leave from? Mount of Olives. Hmm. When he made his triumphal entry, he came from where? Mount of Olives. Hmm. The Abelette Discourse, such an important teaching to all of his disciples. Where did that occur? Mount of Olives. Hmm. When he comes a second time, Zechariah tells us he's going to step foot where? Hmm, interesting. Not, not Bozrah, not the King's Highway. He'll, he'll go there, 
But that's not where he starts out. He starts out on the Mount of Olives. Make no mistake about that. Pretending the kingdom of God. Now, if you read Dr. Fruchtenbaum's Israelogy, the Missing Link in Systematic Theology, he presents a case that the kingdom of God can be represented in five different forms. You know what they were? Yep. yep. You do know? Yeah. Go ahead. Universal. Yep. Theocratic. Yep. Spiritual. Yep. Millennial. Yep. Mystery. Yep. That's it. And next week, we'll go into more detail about those kingdoms. Shall we stand?